I'm Laura Jackson. I'm the director of the Tallgrass Prairie Center at the University of Northern Iowa, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from Axe and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobold. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. So, Laura, Tallgrass Prairie Center is one of the foremost, not only Tallgrass Prairie, but but prairie uh, research and respected centers in the in the Midwest, if not the United States. I mean, you, you guys have represented yourselves uh, all over the place, uh, and you're at the spear point. You're the head. You're the director. How, how does that feel to be the authority of an authority of, of prairie. <laughs> well, uh, you know, everyone has their own, uh, specialty and, and, uh, mine is no specialty at all. I try to make sure <laughs> that I can, can, um, knit together the different pieces of this, uh, of, of this place so that, um, everyone is, so I stay out of everyone's way ah. <laughs> and give everyone the best chance to, shine that they can um, yeah and you're doing a great job we're i was i started the day with andy and he's like on farms doing prairie strips looking in tiles you know and then you've got christine whose specialty is ditches which is a very odd thing to specialize in and then of course you got laura walter who's growing all sorts of things and justin and i told justin this i don't think i've ever learned more in a podcast than that guy just knows stuff oh my goodness and to have them all in the same building bouncing off of each other with you know, the Venn diagram overlaps quite a bit, but they're all very different. And then you're kind of around it also. Are What's your day-to-day? Are you supporting them? Or are you, are you mostly dealing with the university on, on making sure that their programs go unhindered? Or what, what are you doing? Oh, it, it varies a lot. I, it is a half-time director position, so I'm also a professor of biology. Oh. I teach in the biology department. Wow, even more fun. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we have to raise money, we have to write grants, so some of it is grant writing or assisting them with, uh, grant writing, grant, you know, managing, uh, on that end, which is, um, you know, not necessarily, uh, parts of it are fun, you know, the, yeah. the creativity of, of developing an idea, uh, and something that others can get excited about enough to invest in us is, I enjoy that actually. Yeah. And the writing, it's kind of like winning a writing contest. You know, you, <laughs> <laughs> you write a grant proposal and it gets funded and you win. <laughs> how, how many do you have to write to get one? Do you get most of the ones you write or? Uh, it, it varies quite a bit depending on the, on the funder. You okay. Know, uh, we're, we're not writing grants to national science foundation places where it's, you know, a 10% success rate. We're, we're, they're mainly with uh, partners and organizations that we're, you know, fairly certain that we oh, have a okay. we have a chance. We, yeah. you know, we have a worth. Uh, the we have a shot. Fifty hours you're going to spend. Yeah, yeah, on we that. have a shot, and there's a lot of back and forth. But that's a piece of it. Um, you know, signing invoices. You know, <laughs> that's always uh, fun. And and you know, um, there's I don't know. I can't. There isn't a typical day. There's yeah. just lots of things going on and. Uh, 
yeah, just try to keep things running smoothly. And when there there are things that are not in anybody's uh, lane, then they're in my lane. So yeah. so I kind of sweep up uh, from behind and make sure that that things get taken care of. Man, that's crazy. That is, it's uh, I don't know, honorable. You know, to it, like it sounds glorious to be the director of the Tallgrass Prairie Center, but then when you get down to the weeds and you see like, oh, you're actually like just serving is what you do. You just yeah, kind of serve whatever. Yeah, you basically. But it is it. You know, it it's fun to be able to articulate, uh, to talk about our history, to talk about our our mission and what we what we do, and help people to yeah. you know have a better sense of that. So well, let's um, do that then. If, if if that's something you really enjoy, we want we want to hear about it. So what's the what what spurred the Tallgrass Prairie Center and where has it gone since then? Sure. Well, I like to say that it started 50 years ago when some faculty members in the biology department, namely especially Daryl Smith, uh, started wondering whether it was possible to plant prairie. You mm. know, there was a growing realization really throughout the Midwest, the late 60s, early 70s, and my uh, my own family was actually a part of that. Wow. That realized, hey, we're you know, wasn't this prairie and is there any of it left and where would we find it if we wanted to find these plants? So your and family's from the Midwest then? Yeah, I'm, I grew up in Kansas and my dad was getting a master's degree in botany when I was, I don't know, six or seven uh, or, or younger. Getting hmm. and, and we would drive through the Flint Hills of Canvas, Kansas and he would slam on the brakes on I-70 uh, <laughs> Wow. <laughs> pulling over to to look at prairie plants in the road really yeah. so what was what was the roadway mostly back then was it brome like it is now or it was it was virgin prairie really in kansas wow yeah. yeah a lot of prairie in kansas a lot of prairie here and there and everywhere was is it still there those virgin a, prairies a lot of it is you know the huh. the flint hills are the largest expanse of tall grass prairie left in the country and that's a big extent of grassland, you know, that's, yeah. that's grazed. And then where I grew up in, uh, it's the, called the Smoky Hill River, uh, the Smoky Hills uh, where, where we live, there's also a lot of land that can't be farmed. And so it's pastured or it's rough ground that isn't even really pastured. So, mm. for instance, when my dad planted a CRP field in 1985 of pure switchgrass, which was all they had back then for mm -hmm. seed, that field now has all kinds of forbs and native grasses in it. Wow. And that's because the natural ability of the landscape to heal itself through seed dispersal and establishment still exists there. Hmm. That's fascinating. When you start getting out that far west, is it still tall grass prairie or are you more mixed? Mixed, yeah. Okay. It's uh, it, There's a very steep, you know... Uh, rain shadow of the rocky mountains so yeah. as you the further west you go the drier it gets but the flint hills are still categorized as tall grass prairie hmm. they're shorter they're shorter yeah. than here yeah they're shorter <laughs> the short tall grass the short prairie. tall grass prairie <laughs> yeah but it's still it's that flora for the most part a few different you know species yeah. substitutions yeah but then as you get further out it's it's a little it's mixed yeah Man, yeah. so that's fast. So, yeah. so Daryl Smith. So Daryl Smith and other faculty members at Central College and Cornell College and Grinnell and Iowa and Iowa State were going, huh, you know, the prairie's all gone. Is it possible to plant a prairie? 
is is this even something that is that that is feasible scientifically? How would we even go about doing it? And so uh, Daryl Smith was uh, among a number of these far-sighted individuals who decided to just give it a go and see what they could do. Man, so he was at UNI. He was at UNI, yeah, a biology professor at UNI. And so uh, he and colleagues planted eight acres on the UNI campus. They got permission. They got seeds of five species of, of tall grass cultivars from Nebraska and seeded them. And, um, and then gradually added forbs from prairie rescues where there were, you know, widening Highway 63 and other things. And so they were able to add a, a little bit more diversity that way. Mm. And so, you know, there's been prairie on the UNI campus now for 50 years. Yeah, um, that's cool. Yeah. And then he had been an advocate for prairie and for advancing the cause of, of, of protecting prairie remnants and, and planting prairie for, for, you know, since that time. And in the late 80s, um, the counties were finding out that they we're spending all this money on fuel and herbicide to keep the ditches free yeah. of weeds. And Christine may have talked about that history yeah. uh, a little bit, but uh, Daryl had already been working with the roadside, uh, the, the county engineer in our county. Hmm. And so when the legislation came through, um, it was you and I that was, uh, was given the task of working with, potential county roadside managers. And so the, the uh, Christine's office uh, was established through that legislation because Daryl had already been at the forefront working with roadsides and recognizing, hey, this is public land. This is something we could put prairie on. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So that goes back to 1988 when the legislation was passed. And um, that office was in a, you know, a spare office in the biology department, you know, next to Daryl, right? Yeah. So it wasn't the tall grass prairie center. The old janitor's center. office. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So it wasn't the tall grass prairie center, but that's, that's really where all this came from. So the... Where was he getting seed from at the time? Well, at the time, um, that was the problem. There wasn't any seed available that was Iowa source. And mm. so one of the earliest things that he did was to get together with some of the of the existing native seed companies and with the Department of Transportation and work out um, work out a strategy really for injecting more local ecotype seed into the native seed system through commercial means. So that meant third party certification of you know source ID material. And uh, it meant, um, and then uh, he was able to get grants from Living Roadway Trust Fund hmm. to start going out, collecting the native seed, bringing it uh, back here to Blackhawk County. And there for a while, they were working at the uh, plant material station in Missouri mm -hmm. as well for grow outs for seed increase. Do you know any of those seed companies? Because <clears throat> dad started growing his seed, first seed in like, in, in 1985 or six, I know Ozenbaugh was around just barely right at the end of the seventies. I think Dan Allen was like 81 or 82, maybe mm -hmm. Carl Kurtz. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that Dan Allen was involved okay. in this and, and, you know, possibly Carl Kurtz. 
Uh, you know, I couldn't say for sure that your dad wasn't. He, he could uh, very well have been. Um, yeah. But I wasn't. I wasn't yeah. around. <laughs> I was in grad school. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I was actually out in um, the range research, the western, uh, the range research station in western Oklahoma for huh. uh, where they were breeding non-native grasses for range management. So uh, old world blue stems and and some of these that are adapted to the high plains. Yeah. Are they but, hanging out with? Are they still using them out there today? Uh, well, they've gotten away, you know. So those uh, those blue stems are now at large on their own. Ah. Uh, but they also started working with natives. They were working with eastern gamma grass, and that was the the plant mm. that I did my PhD on. So I was I was able to see both yeah. sort of the plant breeding end of seed production and um is that the one that has like little pellets for seed eastern gamma grass yeah, yeah. I, I i think i've literally only sold it one time but it just looks like little oh man forgive my unrefinedness little i kept thinking like man that looks like little hamster turds little yeah, hamster yeah, they're pellets. Little cylindrical <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah little cylinder yeah it's very very cool it's yeah. it's related to corn really yeah yeah, it's Man. a it's a relative of corn. So huh. I could talk all day about that. That's what I spent my twenties yeah, on. Yeah. But we'll 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 skip that. Yeah. But yeah, so so the 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 native seed, the plant materials element was really there at the very beginning because once you have counties that want to get involved, and they want to uh, they want to plant prairie seed. Where do they get it? And if there's no seed available, then we have to do something about yeah. it. So that was. That developing that strategy of of you know of the the public support for native seed you know plant materials development and and then working with um, the DOT and others to specify or prefer source ID seed from Iowa hmm. those pieces you know kind of you know that that sort of chicken and egg problem of there's there's no demand because there's no supply there's no supply because there's no demand yeah they were able to to bridge that with yeah. this, with the system so then you got the two programs and then in 1998 I had a graduate student Dave Williams who uh, was also working at the Tallgrass Prairie Center I was not. I was faculty in biology only. But we were doing research on forb enhancement of Smith Prairie, of the, the campus prairie, which was just mm. all grasses. And so he did his master's thesis with me, and then uh, we published a paper that showed that you could add forb seed to an established native grass stand, and with lots and lots and lots of mowing, you could get establishment of forbs. Oh, that's how. So that's how. So do you plant in the fall, and then you just mow the next year over yeah, and over again? Yeah, we did actually both fall and spring uh, plantings. Oh, over, overseeding. Yeah. So you went went a little heavy. That's so yeah. fascinating. How many? How many is a lot of mowing? It was weekly. Whoa! It was like lawn mowing. That oh kind of mowing. Oh my yeah. goodness! We probably could have backed off from that, but it for an experimental purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So. But he, it worked. It. But it, it was worked. Successful. Yes. Yeah. It was Man. successful. Yeah. Yeah. It was successful. And you can go out there and you can still see some of the lines from that original experiment today. Really. You can see, like, there's where the wild quinine stops, and that's huh. where the no mow treatment was. Wow, because that's a question I get all the time, and I just tell people, I mean, best I know is to burn in the fall and then plant, but I'll just start telling them, hey, one time I know someone that did this and it worked. <laughs> but very, with an extreme <laughs> extreme method. At any rate, um, uh, Dave Williams came to work here, and they sort of started a research 
program here. So Dave was able to do research on a lot of topics that were of interest to Living Roadway Trust Fund. Yeah. And, and you know, Living Roadway Trust Fund has made it possible, really, to to do science on a very practical question of how do you plant prairie, you yeah. know? And that's such a rare opportunity. There's There just aren't very many places and sources of funding that, where you can actually go at a problem, you know, step by step, year by year by year, and keep working out the details. Yeah. Unless you're working for NASA, you yeah. know, or, <laughs> yeah. or you're working for a pharmaceutical or a medical equipment, you know, yeah. those types of things, there's steady funding that, mm -hmm. that creates progress. Yeah. But that's what it takes, you know, it takes steady funding to do the science and to work out the details in order to figure things out slowly over time. I think what's not appreciated enough about um, a program such as you guys is, is that when it was uh, in an inception, inception uh, like you were saying, it is very much a, a baby thing based off of like volunteers and Daryl had to be really creative to um to birth it without it just like falling by the wayside and dying away yes um, uh he yes very creative very persistent and another thing he had going for him was that at the time the universities were the recipients of of um federal appropriations earmarks for a particular mm. projects so we were very well supported by the, the Iowa delegation in Washington that hmm. provided, you know, the funding to renovate this building. It used to be a, used to manuf the build, this building here used to manufacture garbage trucks and the wow. university bought it and renovated it. And so now we have the Tallgrass Prairie Center here, this lab that we're sitting in. Um, it also includes the mail center and the warehouse. But, but you know, that type of, that type of support that type of public support to yeah. develop this, what was then at the time the Native Roadside Vegetation Center. Doesn't that just roll off the tongue? Yeah, that's Isn't that, that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so we still have that old sign in our shop. I'll take you out and show yeah, you. It's Native a, it's roadside. A proper, Native Roadside Vegetation Center. Vegetation yeah. Center. So so the um, the combination of Living Roadway Trust Fund, federal appropriations earmarks for. Uh, for the Native Roadside Vegetation Center, for for the seed, the work that we were doing with seed, yeah. that got us the greenhouse, you know, all that kind of infrastructure, a lot of our uh, early equipment, you know. So, uh, yes, creativity, grant writing, hustle, um, yeah. very, you know, in some ways like like a small business. You mm -hmm. know, you, you just have to find op opportunities and try to, try to make as much of them as you can. Yeah. You know? Was um is your mission statement today the same as it was? It's morphed a little bit, but I think it's just a rearticulation of the same idea. Hmm. You know, uh we we want to make it possible for people to plant prairie and to appreciate uh, the mm. the prairie ecosystem. So, yeah. uh I'm not quoting it directly. It's late in the day, but <laughs> <laughs> Give me a minute. What's the verb? Um, let's see. Uh, it's not facilitate. Uh, oh, empower. That's to empower. The, empower people to to uh, restore and appreciate uh, Tallgrass mm. Prairie. I like that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that means um, 
we're not planting the prairie ourselves necessarily, right? We're yeah. we're we're laying the groundwork, the foundations for you know the best methods for planting it, for the availability of high quality yeah. ecotype seed, uh, the the um, uh, you know, getting to people who have already decided that that's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't say that we're out beating the drum to promote prairie. It, yeah. it, that's another, that's another important job. But for us, I think it's facilitating and empowering people once they've got the bug and they want to do it, let's help them be as successful as possible. Hmm. It's interesting because, um, with helping people, put in prairie like to empower them you're leaving them with the choice so i really do like that choice of words you're saying like hey you have the power to do this and and you can make a difference but i think uh you guys do a lot of stuff that people don't think about these days for we're so used to being able to get what we want when we want it Mm. um so used to that convenience that uh we wouldn't couldn't imagine a time when we couldn't get the most obscure thing you know, and, and at one point, Prairie was a very obscure thing. Now you can get it online within, you know, shipped to you within a day or two. This is not a plug, but if you need it, let us know. Uh, and, and uh, but there was a time not that long ago, 50 years ago, where that was not the case. Not just because the internet wasn't invented. Prairie but seed, you mean? Yeah, yeah. There was, there, yeah. The seed just wasn't around. And, and I mean, That's even right. today, uh, through you guys' programs and other things and, and people who are caring more, so they're handpicking and stuff like that we're able to, uh, we're, we're adding to inventory, right? Mm-hmm. There's, you know, probably a couple hundred species it's within incredible. the West we could have, but, yeah. but that's not, that hasn't always been the case. And I think that, uh, that, that is something that gets overlooked. So people think oh. about, yeah. Oh yeah. And, 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 you know, with the, with the benefit of, of time, I have seen that whole transformation, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. when, when we were, um, my, my parents started this nonprofit called the land Institute and it was devoted to sustainable alternatives and energy, shelter, waste, and waste management and agriculture. So uh, it started out kind of as a sustainable living school in the early 1970s. I milked a cow in the morning and we made our own cheese and <laughs> yeah. grew all our own food and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, and, and gradually, or in the early 80s, it became about uh, trying to mimic uh, the prairie in the design of a new kind of agriculture using perennial and mixed, you know, diverse perennial plants mm-hmm. for seed. So we were about um, looking at the varieties of different species that were native there to Kansas and screening them for crop-like capabilities. Yeah. So as a teenager, I was actually around rows of rows of native plants that were being grown for seed. Mm. The the Land Institute. The Land Institute. That sounds so familiar. Is that around today? Yeah, yeah. Your parents started that? Yeah, my parents started that. That's crazy. I helped start it. <laughs> <laughs> you milked they, the cows. They put <laughs> me to work. They put us kids to work, yes. Yeah. yeah. I always tell people that uh, growing up, I knew a lot about weeds. I didn't know that much about prairie, but I knew a lot about weeds working in those uh, in those fields. Man, so... What is what do they do today? The land Institute? Well, it's uh, uh, my dad is uh, has retired, but um, they have an incredible research program doing plant breeding with native and non-native um, pro kind of 
perennial crops. So one of their crops is intermediate wheatgrass, uh, which is uh, also called Kernza. So like kernel and yeah. Kanza. Uh, and, uh, and that's kind of taken off. There's a major breeding program in Minnesota as well. They've been working with uh, Chinese plant breeders on a perennial rice that's really taken off um, mm. because it cuts out a lot of the, the transplanting. You know, oh. you know, which is huge, right? That's, huge labor. Yeah, uh, huge which is crazy because rice is already like a nickel, you know, in, in terms of price on like the grocery shelf compared uh, to other products. But if you cut it in half, uh, yeah, 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 that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, so uh, so they're they're uh, they're steaming along. You know, they've got beautiful research facilities and a lot of collaborators around the country. But at you know, um, as a teenager. You know, of course, they put you to work and uh, and then coming back and helping in the summers in college. There's a lot of native plants, native plants around and we're working with plants and we're working with. Uh, did you love did you love native plants then when you were growing yes, up? Yes, I did. OK. Yeah. yeah, man. So if you had to guess, you think your love of outdoors is more nature nurture? Oh, you know, given that we were we were five miles from town and weren't allowed to drive in and out, you know, out into town all the time, you know, you just spend a lot of time on your own. Yeah. Um, and so. And you uh, said you're an introvert. Yeah. Right. So it's perfect. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so uh, you know, that means a lot of rambling. You know, a lot of walking up and down the river, the river banks, and. Did you have any stuff. siblings you hang out with? Yeah, I had a, a younger brother, um, and so. Uh, yeah, so you know when you spend that much time out in the country in nature without screens or other alternative yeah. activities other than lots of reading, you know you're gonna. That's what you're gonna be drawn what, to. What percentage of the time did you wear shoes when you're outside? Oh, of the game? well, you know there's poison ivy, there's oh, rocks, yeah, there's, yeah. yeah, all the time. Yeah, okay, much, all right. Yeah. Yeah, but um, I don't. I've never seen a picture of my dad when he was a kid with shoes on. Uh-huh. I've ne- never seen it. But they had a little more controlled environment on their farm. Than, right. Yeah, right. But right. Yeah. So anyway, it it gave. I was pre-adapted. Let's say to this to this uh, job because of those experiences plus you know the graduate school and then they were both uh, you know they started a nonprofit together and then my mom moved on and. St- was part of a different nonprofit up in Minnesota called the Land Stewardship Project, hmm. which is m- more of a conventional uh, sustainable agriculture. Were they doing this full time? Uh, my uh, the Land Institute. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. Since I was in. Uh, that eight, is eight really grade, jumping yeah. all in to to do. Yeah. A, was it? It was a nonprofit. The Land yes. Institute was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Man, mm-hmm. that's yeah. crazy. 1976. That is so started. awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so nonprofits, you know, you have to write grants, you have yeah. to hustle, <laughs> have to find opportunities, and and bring you know bring good people together, uh, and so that experience as well is you know not something that you necessarily learn how to do as a college professor. Mm-hmm. So so those things um, you know have contributed a lot, and they're both both my parents are still my my secret weapons. You know, I can still go to them. Yeah. With, questions and and ideas and and get a lot of good that's a lot really of good insight cool. from them yeah. what you so you teach right now do you teach like intro to bio or what do you teach 
Right now, my teaching load is is light. I teach a, a graduate colloquium that meets once a week, and we okay. have seminar speakers, and I yeah. have a, one for undergraduates where they practice giving uh, scientific talks from their research. So those are, huh. you know, it's fairly that's, light. That's a great class to to learn how to communicate your research. Yeah. That's like what our industry needs Sci- right well now. science communication you know you you have to be able to obviously you know do your experiment but then you have to be able to talk about it and and present a good graph that people can understand and yeah. read all the numbers on it and basic stuff like that oh so, man i've been so. in those talks where the speaker's just way smarter than me and you look at that graph and you're like sorry buddy i do and, have no idea what that and says. that was that was their burden to make that graph understandable to yeah. you you know, yeah, yeah. really, it's not a matter of anybody being smarter. It's just a matter of. Well, that makes me feel uh, better. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, you. It takes a, it takes a lot of work to turn a, a rough you know chart, a graph into a polished figure that you could actually yeah. communicate with. So. So when did you get here? So I got here uh, in 1993. I had done a I done a postdoc at uh, the Desert Botanical Garden in Phoenix, another you know plant centered yeah. uh, place, which was wonderful. Working on abandoned farmland restoration between Phoenix and Tucson. Hmm. So all these abandoned abandoned farm- farmland, all all kinds of abandoned cotton fields. They just run out of water. They just ran. So they basically depleted the land after De- so many. Yeah, years. they depleted the the groundwater. Oh. And and, and uh, cotton uses a lot of irrigation, and and so a lot of that yeah. land was abandoned. So the water rights were sold to the city, growing cities, and so we had a grant to look at you know how do you how do you restore desert saltbush community to these desert lowlands. So this is Sonoran Desert, but it's it's to the lower elevation than the than the giant saguaros, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know seed. Getting seed for that kind of stuff, pretty dicey. You could get some species, but not others. Yeah. Um, How is it today? Is it? I don't. I haven't. Fought, I haven't kept up with it. But okay. you know, the the seed, as as you know, you know, the the native seed industry differs so much from one region to another yeah. in terms of what sort of demand there is. Yeah. But uh, I did make friends with a native seed producer, and so. Uh, um, that was fortunate. I was able to uh, buy some seed from her and others. And then um, before that, I was at, at Cornell University. I did my PhD there. And, okay. Um, what did uh, you study there for your PhD? Well, uh, plant ecology, and I worked on eastern gammagrass. So, <laughs> so you got this, like, secret crush the, on eastern gammagrass. Oh, I do. I do. I, it's my, my first husband. It's my first marriage. <laughs> Uh, I spent my 20s with Eastern Gammagrass, <laughs> oh, and, and then I met my current husband. Why? Yeah. Why? What, what's so appealing well, about Eastern okay, Gammagrass? Well, okay, so it goes back to this question of, is it possible to develop a perennial grain crop? And oh. the whole thing with perennials is, you know, they don't produce much seed, right, yeah. compared yeah. to annuals. They don't need to. And, and the ecological theory is that there's a trade-off between reproduction and growth, and that you can't really produce lots of seed and also be a long-lived perennial. Hmm. But Eastern Gammagrass had a, they discovered a single gene mutation that was in the wild where all of the male flowers were turned into female flowers. So it's got a tassel like corn. Okay. And so it's got separate female flowers that produce that seed and that little cylinder thing in that little chamber, and then there's a whole bunch of male flowers that look almost exactly like a corn tassel. 
Well, in these plants, all of those male flowers were producing seed instead. And so here's this incredible contrast mm. between a high-yielding perennial grass and it's an, and a low-yielding one. So, so can you produce grain from perennial? Like, are we still working towards that? We we are. We're making progress. Wow. Yeah. And you know, this that study showed that the eastern gamma grass that was producing five times as much seed was no weaker, you know, no, you know, shorter lived than its immediate full sibs, you know, uh, plants that were normal. That is crazy. I did not know that. I did not know we were even working towards that sort of thing. Is, uh, what's eastern gamma grass seed useful for? Well, it kind of, it tastes like corn. I mean, we're not really working on it as a perennial grain crop at this point. Okay. It's, it's maybe not very practical, uh, but it it was a test of a principle, right? It was mm-hmm. a test of an idea and a very strongly, you know, fully held idea that it was impossible to breed for higher yield mm. in perennial crops, in perennial grasses, because they would just become annuals. What would that do to human What would that change about human society if we were able to produce grains off of perennials? Well, there wouldn't be as much tillage. Yeah. Right. Wouldn't be as much soil erosion. Yeah. Right. I can Um, I could name a couple of big companies that would go close to going bankrupt. (laughs) But well, there'd still be room for a lot of plant breeding and development of better better varieties. That's true. Um, And and you know maybe if we grew these grains and mixtures, we could um, reduce uh, dependency on herbicides and mm. um, reduce dependency on pesticides. If that it looked cool. more like a prairie, if, 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 our, if our grain crops looked more like a domesticated prairie. Yeah. So that's why I love the name of your podcast. Oh, thanks. Yeah, the, <laughs> the prairie, prairie farm. farm. We, you know, we've never quite gotten to that point, but I'm really trying to get, um, uh, what's the name? We've reached out a couple times, and he seemed interested, but hasn't given a definite. Um, the guy who wrote Edible Prairie Edible Plants of the Prairie. Yeah, Kelly Kincher. Yes. Yeah. He Thank- worked at the Land Institute when I was a kid. Wow. Oh, yeah. Man. Kelly and I go way back. Wow. My goodness. Yeah, because we were, we're trying to, if we can eat off of the prairie, even better, you know, that yeah. would be really yeah. cool. Besides, you know, just like prairie chickens, which, by goodness, I really want to have prairie chickens on, on a prairie someday. It's like yeah. my goal. You know, yeah. Is to, yeah, then you know you've really succeeded. Oh, yeah. man. And I know, like, the issue is you raise them in captivity and then you release them and they, like, don't have instincts and they die. But right. uh, uh, I, I think we can get over that. You know, I feel like mm-hmm. we could. Yeah. Anyway. Just, just I know. a lot of prairie. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you studied eastern gamma grass uh, a lot. <laughs> just, <laughs> well, I just, just cannot imagine. just took me a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then... You got your PhD at, at Cornell, you said, mm-hmm. and then straight here from there? No, then I went to the Desert Botanical Garden That's for right. three yep. years, did that, yep. and, and then came here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and was this place kind of always on? Like, were you eyeing this place? Like, oh, I'd love to work there someday? Um, or? Not necessarily, but it was a good fit at the time for yeah. my husband and me. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a good it's been a good place to be. And, you know, I was able to work with this, um, these farmers that are members of Practical Farmers of Iowa. Yeah. And, you know, on-farm experiments were, are, were really my jam. I mean, just being able to work on applied questions that, that meant something to them. 
hmm. and could be something that are actually a viable alternative in some not too far distant universe. You yeah. know? So the first uh, project I did was working with some farmers in northeast Iowa who you who raised um, cattle on uh, rotationally grazed pasture. So they moved mm. their cattle from one paddock to the next, let the pasture rest uh, for a period of time, and then you know only after you know thirty or sixty days would that pasture see those cattle again. And we knew that that would make it possible for warm season grasses and native legumes to survive in mm. that kind in that type of management. Man, and how how long did they put? Could they let cattle be on a um, in a specific pasture? It would depend on the time of year, the forage production, oh, etc. Yeah. You know, when you're working with dairy cattle, they're moving them every day, twice a day, to wow. to fresh pasture. Yeah, with uh, with cow calf herd, they might be there for say ten days, and then move them into a new area. You know, so it sort of depends on the the production system for Isn't the cattle. Part of the issue with cattle that late in the year, like right now, the kind of big blue stem and and switchgrass and Indian grass that would be out in the field, they don't really like that much. Yeah, you know, but you know what we what we don't see here in Iowa is that you know South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas. New Mexico, Eastern Colorado, they're all using native grasses for range, for, mm. for cattle production. Yeah. That, that's native pasture. That's native range. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, cattle, where, where I grew up in Kansas, people are grazing cattle on prairie. Hmm. That's what they do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, prairie plants can take it. What do you think that, you know, these bison just were, yeah. you know, what were they doing here, right? Yeah. They were eating they were eating grass and, yeah. and forbs. And this system was, you know, it co-evolved with grazers for millions of years. Mm. Uh, so we know that this is a place that can withstand grazing if it's done right. Yeah. Know? So that was What's the first done wrong? Well, continuous grazing, okay. um, you know, where, where you just, you stick them in a, in a pasture with with fencing and and a water tank and they're all there they're all summer that's that's not going to work yeah. you know for in for most grasses only a few yeah. species can handle that so yeah i mean but but uh with with careful management of grazing which was something that a lot of farmers and pfi have been interested in you can actually increase the stocking rate of the cattle you have healthier wow. soil Better water infiltration, better Not to fertility, healthier, cows, healthier animals. Yeah, you know something um, really interesting is uh, I went I went to two different um, colleges. Both had a lot of students from overseas, um, mm -hmm. South America and Europe, um, and then the second school had a lot of people from Asia. And uh, they South Americans didn't seem to care, but Europeans and Asians would not eat the meat in America. They're like, oh, I'm not a vegetarian. I just don't eat uh, that meat. Grain field, grain fed. Yep. Yeah. Or like chicken breasts, not supposed to be that big. You know, they're like, that's weird. That's and, weird. And, yeah, yeah. And it's weirdly colored. And, yeah. and, and they're like, no, we're not vegetarians. We love meat. We just like meat, not whatever that yeah. is. And, yeah. uh, you know, so many, uh, antibiotics and hormones and all sorts yeah. of stuff that go. And if you there. think about it, you know, if we, if we had an agricultural system that was more based on grazing 
prairie. Mm-hmm. We could have biodiversity. We could have birds. We could have, yeah. you know, we could have abundant wildlife. We could still be eating meat. Yeah. Not as much. Which you know, is probably tote would pro- probably, probably suit us well. A little better, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would be more expensive. We wouldn't eat as much. That is but, exactly you know what it, I've been telling people is because when you when you end up doing that, if you get pigs out of those tiny buildings and you know outside and and cows, uh, you're not as efficient. Well, what happens if you're not as efficient? Okay, you're a little more expensive. Yeah, that was an issue 400, 500 years ago when food was scarce, but that is not an issue in our part of the world at all. Um, and so we're just, we're just looking for ways to put bacon on something else. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh man. Yeah, I know you want double bacon with your bacon there, you know? And, and yeah. uh, but if, yeah. if, but we yeah. used to have a landscape that was only half row crops. So from, I don't from, ever remember that. From, no, that's crazy. From, from the, from the, from the plow down, the initial plow down the 18, you know, 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. 70s, uh, through about 1955, our landscape in Iowa was only half row crops, and the other half was small grains, hay, pasture. Yeah. If you look at the ag statistics, you know the uh, the those two lines only start to diverge after 1956. And so at that point, people started getting rid of their oats and planting more soybeans. They started getting rid of their um, their hay and planting more soybeans. They started getting rid of their cattle because they didn't want to raise hay mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. And they didn't need bedding. If you, know, if you don't have livestock, you don't need bedding. Yep. That's the oats. And so that whole system you know, unraveled basically. But that crop rotation managed weeds, it managed fertility, and it kept quite a bit of biodiversity in the landscape. Yeah. And a lot of room for native plants too. Um, You know, the the hay was tame hay, the pasture was brome pasture, but there's still more opportunity for natives in the landscape. Yeah, I, we totally agree with that and and finding new places for prairie i mean we're kind of in a, a tough spot because us trying to convince a farmer why they should have prairie well it looks like we're just selling you something you know what i mean mm-hmm. and instead of taking it uh, it's an easier pill to swallow from you guys uh or practical farmers of iowa you know something that can really say hey we've got no money vested interest we're just trying to help uh trying to help you guys and 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 back to your point about the farms uh a lot of um, the synergy was replaced with uh, like chemicals, like shortcuts. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there were a lot of reasons for it. Farmers, in most cases, really didn't have a choice. You know, mm. farm policy and and so forth uh, kind of force force them to go that direction. Mm-hmm. But you know, that was a landscape that was kind of a domestic prairie, right? Mm. There, there was yeah. grassland. There was agricultural grassland that performed a lot of those same functions. Yeah. that the prairie used to used to perform. I heard something interesting about uh, bobwhite quail. Their, I guess, original uh, border of their habitat was southern Iowa, but then farmers came in and put in um, hedgerows. This was according to um, Nor- northern ra- northern extent of their range. Yeah, and yeah. but sorry, did I say southern? Well, no, you didn't. You said border, but I know. Oh which yeah, no- northern. Border, yeah. But then we started putting in these. Um, uh, Osage orange hedgerows mm-hmm. and it was perfect habitat for them uh, 
to be on like farm landscapes with this cover, mm-hmm. this really thick cover. And so they actually grew with the landscape or with the, the oh, as the farmers they went expanded up. Yep. with the, yeah, that's, that's got up to Minnesota. Yeah. But then we ripped them all out. And then they actually, right now, they're actually closer to their more native habitat, mm-hmm. um, which is southern Iowa, northern yeah. Yeah. Missouri. And we had them growing up in Kansas. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And we see them on our farm as well. We, we've got pretty good habitat for them, but, you know, it's a few and far between mm-hmm. these days. But uh, what, when you look at the programs you've had on come through here, what, what have been some that you, are more excited about because you think they'll have a bigger impact? Well, um, I mean, we don't want to do anything that doesn't have a big impact. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I don't, I don't know if I can pick any, any favorites, but you know, an, an example of, you know, how we're thinking about impact is looking at how can we make the, help the conservation reserve program to be even better, right? The conservation mm-hmm. reserve program has a lot of uh, footprint in Iowa. It's the kind of the biggest game in town for, for um, planting natives. Mm-hmm. And, and yet it's not a program that's been designed as a prairie restoration program. It's, yeah. it's designed for, for other purposes, but it's sort of interesting how over time it's become more diverse and, it's like it's it's sort of getting to prairie restoration through the back door, you yeah. know. Um, and so, you know, look looking at it from the perspective of how can we m- make people more successful when they do a planting, you know, more of the species that they that they actually put out there germinate and grow, um, that the seed mixes that are actually enacted through those contracts are good seed mixes or better than they yeah. would be. Uh, you know, those are all things that it's a little different from I'm going to take this plot of land and I'm going to restore prairie as as good a prairie as I can possibly get on this one piece of land. Right. Yeah. I spend a lot of time very, you know, um, focused on on that piece. This is more saying, OK, broadly, what are some things that can be done to help the CRP program as a whole get each of those plots of land a little bit better. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it's kind of a weird way of thinking about prairie restoration. But it's it's very satisfying to think, hey, some some of the things that we're learning could be implemented in policy and actually improve the biodiversity, you know, maybe it's just by two species, you yeah, know, yeah, uh, or just a, a higher percentage of natives in the final planting. So that's one thing that's that's been exciting to to work on is just, you know, how can we have an impact on the CRP? That's hmm. that's kind of like a big a big dream to do to do yeah. something like that. I Dad told me I think his first ever CRP planting was big blue stem and uh, round headed bush clover, two mm-hmm. species, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, and now we he wouldn't even let me put out something that's less than 30, you know, although there's one program right now that like basically requires five. I'm like, Oh, gross. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, Yeah. But I, you know, they're, they're trying their best. And, and, uh, but, um, like North American Prairie conference that taught me so much. Now I push a 2020 mix or 50% forbs, 50% Mm -hmm. grasses on everything. Yeah. Um, Oh, just about everything and 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 it's hard because 
sometimes people are going to CRP and they really care about, they want a beautiful mix. that's going to be great habitat and, and as you know, very diverse and, uh, well done. And then sometimes they're like, just give me my paycheck. And I'm like, Oh man, I, yeah. something yeah. is better than nothing, but yeah. you know, well, you know, and, and we think about, well, we're, we're there for the people who do want more, you know, and not all of them, not all of them do in terms yeah. of, of help, of, uh, trying to help with, with techniques. I, I worked with my brother on a project. He lives in Kansas near, near Lawrence and he had 18 acres that had been in, um, pasture and he sold his longhorns and, and, hmm. uh, um, decided to plant it. And so we had this project together and, uh, it was a great way to just get back in touch with my little brother, you know, yeah. but, uh, um, it was amazing. I, I tried to buy seed for him and, the the seed mixes that were given to him as suggestions, one by a seed company that was local and another by the Kansas equivalent of the DNR, a different name. The the Kansas the seed mix wasn't too bad. It was it was pretty good, I thought. Um, but the one that the seed company handed him here said, we can do this for you. It was like mostly annuals, mostly non-native. It was 15 seeds per square foot. Hmm. And it was just like, what is this? Yeah. And that would have been acceptable. And he's like, That's well, they, they told me, you know, so he's a hunter. He, he enjoys, he came from the same background I did. And, you know, so he could be, he's a kind of customer who could be educated to yeah. want more. Yeah. But the easy pipeline that, that he ended up, you know, if he hadn't had me to work with him would have been this crappy, you know, annual non-native oh. seed mix yeah it such like a garbage you know and it's just such a waste of opportunity there yeah. you know yeah. so i'm hoping that you know through the work that we're doing we can reach more of those people who are open to it are interested you know in doing yeah. something a little better a little more and and um you know we can we can help we can help to make that happen just through the information and yeah. other resources so and and walk <clears throat> me through this because we are coming to a close and it's been a really cool day actually my laptop's coming to a end of its life here Uh-oh. but um so the major programs you guys have here you've got uh laura walter kind of runs the iowa ecotype yeah, um plant materials program yep. right mm-hmm. getting getting stuff to the producers to have more mm-hmm. uh quality which when you you know you guys semi and rightfully so boast about um, the Midwest having, you know, the most, the highest percentage of, of its species that it used to have, you know, by far mm-hmm. than any mm-hmm. other region in the yeah. world. Yeah. That's heavily because of this place. Well, here. yeah, we, yeah, we I mean, played a role. We yeah, played a role. Um, you're we're, a big we're, heavy we're hitter. proud of it. But, yeah, and the uh, way Babe Ruth but, played a role in winning well, the... <laughs> but the native seed companies, you know, have done their part. A lot of those uh, other plant materials are from native That's seed fair. company, yeah. you know, uh, efforts as well. Babe Ruth couldn't well. have done it alone. But, exactly, uh, <laughs> yeah. exactly. But, uh so you have that program. You have the roadside program, which is really cool. Christine just, told me you were looking at twenty-five to thirty thousand acres. You've put, you've uh, mm-hmm, planted native mm-hmm, seed, mm-hmm. or on. yeah, yeah. And then yeah. Um, research, and, yeah. The and- Andes program, Prairie on Farms, facilitating that work yeah. with, you know, that's where all the land is. It's in farms, yeah, you yeah. know. <laughs> so um, yeah. working with working with that, and then the and then the the research program. Oh yeah. Yeah. And Justin's yeah. got his research. And then, of course, the, the grant writing of all of it. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. That sounds yeah. like a lot. And then you guys do conferences and 
and uh oh, there's the prairie roots project you know we grow these roots in, yes. in pots and and, and you and see those all these. over the place now yeah we've counties we've, all over the place counties now. have you know root displays um and then we've also got for banners them? can anyone apply to buy one yeah anybody can apply to buy them it's self-supporting program so on that one we just we just pay for the all the work and the labor just by selling the yeah. root displays. We did get a grant from Living Roadway Trust Fund this last year so that we could give some away to nature centers within Iowa. So for anyone um, who doesn't know, if you see those pictures of like, look at these 12 foot roots of big blue stem, you know, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's what these are. What, uh, what do they cost? What do you um, the the roots are twenty two hundred dollars. Okay, yeah, twenty two hundred bucks. They're yep. cool looking guys. They're... It takes about three years to grow them. Yeah, you know, not oh, all yeah. of them turn out. You know, we'll we have thirty pots and we'll harvest ten a year and roughly and you know five of them will be duds. You know, yeah. so so there's a lot that goes into it, a lot of materials and supplies. But yeah, that keeps it going. You know, that makes it possible yeah. to keep. Hiring students to help weed and water and all and that. And I, I think when people, even when they just see pictures, but more so when they see it in person, they have like an emotional experience of like, whoa, that is huge. That goes in our land. And I understand roots don't grow like that. They're, yeah, they don't grow like a funnel. We're but. very upfront. It's an artificial, we're growing in an artificial medium, but that's how, that's how the only way you can see them. You know, you yeah. can't see them underground. It's, oh, dark, yeah. it's dark down there. So yeah. Yeah. But that program has really kind of our, our education arm in a way, because that gets people talking and thinking about Prairie and what it does and how much is unseen below the surface. You know, yeah. that's, that's a big part of the ecosystem. So yeah. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Well, before we before we leave the peoples today, is there anything you would like to share? Uh, well, did the other staff talk about Irvin Prairie at all? Did Justin did. talk about yeah. it? Okay. Oh, yeah. 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 That was a all cool right. place cuz I I'd, I'd been on a I'd been on a field trip and had okay. lots of questions about it. All right, it. great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to didn't want to leave that out. Well, I guess I'd say, you know, this is it's been the opportunity of a lifetime to be able to work on this, to bring students to all this, um, to get their start. We've had a lot of students and AmeriCorps members that we've, you know, have we've uh, graduated alums yeah. of, of the program. So do to you speak. feel like they, they, the students really care? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we've had some wonderful students that have, you know, either gotten a master's here or just worked here as an undergrad and, you know, kind of seen the whole cycle from from spring, summer, fall, winter and back mm -hmm. into spring again and really, uh, really get a great education through just rubbing shoulders with the staff and, and doing the hands on work. So we couldn't do it without them. And the AmeriCorps members are, you know, re often recent students. And so that's been very uh, rewarding as well, just yeah. to um, get get students, young people out there in the world with these experiences. And the next job they go to, we, we feel they really haven't left us. We've just embedded them in another, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. another yeah. place. So, yeah. Man, that is really cool. Well, then I just have one more question for you. If you could snap your finger, change one thing about the world, what would it be? I leave it very large and very vague on purpose. <laughs> Well, you know, U.S. farm policy um, is what controls this tall grass prairie region. You know, this is this is what determines what's grown on the landscape. And right now, it's really not accounting for um, polluted water. 
Um, it's not necessarily uh, doing a good job creating a food system that's healthy for most people. Mm. And, you know, it's left us kind of a, a barren, hostile, sterile uh, landscape in mm. many areas that that uh, is not the it's not the farm country that kids grew up with in the yeah. 60s. You know, it's just as just as long ago as the baby boomers were kids. Yeah, this was a very different place. Yeah. Um, and I'm not being nostalgic here. This isn't about nostalgia. This is about real loss, mm-hmm. real loss. And um, that loss is paid for by ordinary citizens and mm. rural communities. And the benefits have gone to, you know, agribusness. Yeah, and very few n- hands. Not necessarily yeah. farmers, right? Agribusiness. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're all part of this big system, myself included, you know, uh, as a public employee, we're all part of this big system that's got, you know, has, has um, created benefits for some, but a, a lot of of unnecessary losses. Yeah. You know, and and I, it's not it's the loss of the wildflowers and the and the natives and the and the quail, but it's also the loss of rural communities mm-hmm. and the loss of good drinking water and you know the chance to to take a dip in the creek and and yeah. all those things and so. Um, that farm policy wouldn't could still be successful and and create successful uh, livelihoods in agriculture, um, but look very different. Hmm. That is that is well said. Um, something I really like that you said. You said it's not about nostalgia. It's not necessarily about the past. It's it's. Uh, um, I would say it is partially about the past, but it's about the people now and the future, you know, it's a big deal. You know, we're, we're staring down the barrel of a gun that is not good news. You know, if we don't, if we don't change some things and, and And, and climate change is not going to be, not going to be easy on, on this region. No, Uh, it's not going to be easy. We don't really know what's coming. All we know is that it's coming. It's here already. And it's only going to be stranger and stranger each year. Um, So, you know, um, we really have to face up to that. And, and, um, you know, that means, that means a lot of things and, and it's going to be hard, you know, it's just going to be hard. So, mm-hmm. so I, you know, I want our, I want, uh, our kids, young people to have the best life they can have and have, um, have beauty and nature around them. Yeah. And, um, and we can do that. Yeah. You know, we can if we want to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Laura. It was, thanks for lending, lending us your team today and, and, uh, your own time. And I know you're very busy, so I really, really appreciate it. Very it's kind of you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, man. And to all of our friends listening, thanks for joining us. You guys know you guys know the deal. You guys know the deal. There's there's a lot going on for conservation, and and you can have a part of it. You can make a difference. And uh, several things you can do. You can plant your own prairie in your yard. You can uh, go visit a prairie nearby. You can 
Uh, talk to your friends about the prayer. You can share this podcast if you don't feel like talking to them about it. You know, you could share it with your your strange uncle who just tirades about how prairie is a waste of space on the side of the roadsides and how it all needs to be mowed. You you know, feel free to send them my email. We'll we'll have a good chat. Um, and the reason that all this matters, even if you're not planting your own prairie, is is because conservation. It's a group effort, but it it happens one mind at a time.